0: The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at verses 25 and 27 of chapter 1. But just again, to, to give us the surrounding context, I'm going to read from verses chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, verse 5. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Please pray with me again. Lord, we begin our time in your word with prayer because we know that in our flesh alone, with just our mental capacities and efforts, Lord, we we could read your word and yet remain unchanged. We recognize that even though your word is powerful, unless you cause it to work, to open our eyes to behold spiritual things, Lord, in our own flesh, we would not discern what we need to know. And so we ask you for your assistance, that you would help us to see your word, to understand what it says and clearly see its implications in our life so that we would change. And live in a way that would most honor you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. On June 27th, 1979, a passenger jet that was filled with 248 passengers was hijacked by Palestinian terrorists. And after uh, landing at Intabe Airport in Uganda, most of those passengers were released However, not all were. Ninety-four Israeli passengers and the 12-member uh, Air France crew remained. And the terrorists threatened to kill all the remaining people unless their demands for a prisoner release were met. And so when the, the world heard the news about this hijacking, most just assumed that these uh, these hostages were as good as dead however in less than a week the idf the israeli defense force developed a plan to rescue these hostages they planned a secret night operation in which israeli transport planes carried a hundred commandos over 2500 miles to uganda and in less than 90 minutes they rescued the hostages And when the news of the successful operation was heard, it spread like wildfire throughout the earth, around the world. But ironically, the news of the greatest rescue operation that's ever taken place was much more slow to be heard. That which was accomplished by Christ on the cross. This was the responsibility given to the apostles when Before Christ ascended to heaven, he told them to go into all the earth and to share this good news with the rest of the world. And he appointed them to that task. And this is the the same task that was given to the Apostle Paul as he explains in the passage before us. That he was especially called by God to spread this great news of salvation throughout the whole world. But Paul was not just an announcer of this good news. He wasn't just like a journalist or a newsman, so to speak. He was actually a participant in the rescue operation. As he announced the good news of salvation to unbelievers, it is through hearing that good news that people who had been hostages to sin their whole lives were actually set free on the basis of what they heard about Christ's accomplishment. So he was actually participating in the rescue operation himself. And this is why he was so devoted to his calling as an apostle. As he said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all people so that I might save some. He recognized that the power of salvation is in Christ, but it's through preaching that message that people actually experience that salvation for themselves. And last week, as we looked at Paul's explanation of ministry, as it begins in verse 24, we noted how he explained that he understood there was a cost to his ministry, to this calling of gospel ministry. And that cost was suffering. Today, he goes on to explain his responsibility in his ministry, which entails... Three things, as suggested in your bulletin. First of all, his status is one of servant to the church. His stewardship is to make the Word of God fully known. And the message that he proclaimed was particularly that mystery that had now been revealed. And we'll look at all these in the passage before us. Let's look at, first of all, his status. He says, it is of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. He's a servant of the church and a minister of the church. That, that word minister means servant. It's a familiar one. It's the word diaconos, where we get the word deacon. And then in the ancient world, it was, it was a broad term. It could describe a person who waited on tables. It could also describe a person who is a domestic servant, even a messenger or a courier. But in general, it just described a person who will serve the interests of another person. And Paul actually defines the nature of his service in the phrase that follows. He is a servant, a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. He's a servant of the church in his Service to the church was one of a stewardship. Stewardship, uh, or, or steward was a, a household manager, and therefore their stewardship was the responsibilities that a household manager had. They were responsible to make sure all the responsibilities of the household were taken care of all the cleaning and the cooking, the caring for the children. They needed to take care of the residents. Now, when a, when a married couple goes on a date today, usually they, they hire a babysitter to watch their children, to take care of them, to make sure they stay safe. And the, to, the responsibility of the babysitter is to make sure these children follow the rules of the household. So they, the, the, the babysitter has authority over those kids while the parents are gone. She doesn't replace the parents but she still has authority to make sure that the parent's will is carried out within their house. Moreover, her authority is not given to exalt her, but, but her authority is given for the interest of the kids. To take care of those kids, to make sure they have all their needs and that they are safe. And notice that, the, that Paul similarly was given this responsibility by God for you. He's to watch over and care for the church until Christ returns. And this responsibility has likewise been passed down from Paul and the apostles to pastors and elders from each successive generation throughout church history. And that's why Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders, as we saw earlier today, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock you pay t- careful attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, so you, you see in those words the, the weight of responsibility that Paul understood a pastor has because God wants his people taken care of. The primary focus. In elder stewardship is then highlighted in the next phrase. To make the word of God fully known. This is Paul's stewardship. To make the word of God fully known. The NASB says, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And the idea in this this phrase is that no portion... In no aspect of God's word would be neglected, that all of it would be taught, that all of it would be understood and explained and applied. Every book, every doctrine and all of their implications as Jesus charged during the great commission, go into all the world baptizing and teaching them everything that I have commanded you, all of it, not just the great news of salvation, but all the implications that go with it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. No book neglected. No promise overlooked. And Paul had this same responsibility as he told the Ephesian elders. Acts 20 verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Notice how Paul associates not declaring the whole council with blood being on his hands. Because caring for the church required that the church know all that had been revealed to them. And it was his responsibility to make sure they understood these things. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 9.15, he says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if I do it unwillingly, I'm entrusted with a responsibility. Paul understood that his identity as an apostle, as a pastor, was wrapped up in this task of explaining God's word. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us, speaking of the other pastors, as servants of Christ. As stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's, that's what you expect of your babysitters. Just keep them safe. Keep them nourished. Protect them. Watch over them. Don't use them. Just care for them. Be faithful to the task that's given to you. Paul understood for me to be faithful to the task means I explain what the Word of God says. What it means and what its implications are. those are, that's, that's his primary responsibility. And it's easy to get distracted with all sorts of other things. It's remarkable that God didn't call Paul to be a military officer. Or a politician. Or, a, or an advocate for those facing injustice. He called him to be a preacher. And to preach the whole counsel of God. Why was preaching of the Bible so important to Paul? I mean, why didn't God make him any of those other things? Why do you give the same responsibility to every pastor and elder and missionary that would follow? Well, it's because God knows that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's God's Word that actually brings about spiritual life. 1 Peter one twenty three. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Jesus made it very clear that it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. These words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. As we saying, based upon the, the, the words of Peter where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Your words give us life, even if we had the whole world, it would profit us nothing. We need your word, we need life, spiritual life and it's through the word that not only do we have are we born again and have spiritual life, but it's also through the word that we're sanctified as Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in your truth by your word, they're sanctified. And there's a lot of preaching in America today, but very little preaching of the word of God. I don't say that as a criticism. It's just an honest fact. Very little of the word of God is explained. And even preaching that ex- that, that claims to be expository is often little more than, than just a pastor's running commentary on what, he wants to talk about what comes to his mind as he looks at a verse in the Bible. He's not actually explaining what that passage means. He's just explaining how it impacts him. Well, what's the big deal if that's what they do? I mean, isn't this just quabbling over styles of preaching? Joseph, you prefer to preach verse by verse through the Bible and they prefer topical messages or more inspiring messages, more messages of... This or that? Isn't it just this a difference of how you approach ministry? Well, the difference is that people don't know that they're being spiritually starved if they're not receiving the Word of God. You are well aware of the recent baby formula crisis in our country where some mothers weren't able to feed their, their babies because they couldn't find baby formula, but you might not be aware that about 15 years ago, it was discovered by some it, it, that some entre- entrepreneurs in eastern China—these entrepreneurs had sold hundreds of bottles of bake, fake baby formula that resulted in the deaths of at least 60 infants. Christopher Bodine of the Associated Press reported this. He says nearly all the victims were children of impoverished, poorly educated farmers who fed their infant's baby formula that had almost no nutritional value. Some year-old infants were only half the usual size for children their age. Others were months old but weighed less than they, when they were born. Up to 200 babies who were fed the formula developed what call, doctors called big head disease, causing the infant's heads to grow abnormally large while their bodies wasted away. Some babies died within three days of being fed the formula, while others were hospitalized after the parents discovered their children were sick. The descriptions matched symptoms of edema, swelling caused by an excess of fluid, which is a common feature of starvation. Now, in that case, it became pretty clear physically, observably, that these children were starving after a fairly short period of time. But it's not clear in the spiritual realm. A person could be starving from the day they're born again and have no idea that they're getting little to no nutritional, spiritual nutrition in their life. But over time, the effects will be manifested. They won't grow spiritually. They'll, they'll fall prey to, to sins and struggles. They, they will have their heart hardened they will no longer feel any shame to things that, that even they once carried great shame for. I mean, you want to know, why is our culture in such a mess right now? Like, why? where, where is all this, this, this craziness coming? Why are people believing things that are just absolute nonsense? It's Because there's a famine in the land. Amos 8.11 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. Really, this this, this was an act of judgment in Israel. And I think you could conclude that a similar judgment has really been carried out upon our own nation. And so we're not just talking about difference in preaching styles. We're talking about the difference between spiritual life and death. And a similar famine, spiritual famine, existed in Europe prior to the Reformation. When people had been cut off from God's word because of church authorities, didn't believe that people should hear directly from God's word. And so when some pastors, namely Tyndale and Uh, Wycliffe and others, Huss and Luther, began to read God's word for themselves, they recognized this word needs to be written in the vernacular. People need to be able to read God's word for themselves so that they can see the riches of God's glory in the word. And so this is why they were so adamant about getting the Bible translated into English and into German and to other vernacular uh, languages in their vernacular, in the common Tongue. And they were willing to lay down their life to see that it was distributed. And this is also why Calvin, though he was a great scholar, devoted almost all of his time to the expository ministry of the Word. In other words, preaching verse by verse through the Bible. In Geneva, he preached on a New Testament book on Sunday mornings and on the in the afternoons. And then on an Old Testament book on weekday mornings. Sorry, weekday mornings. He was preaching nearly every day. And that's why we have this massive Calvin's commentary series. It's the product of his sermons. And he did this because he understood that, quote, God begets and multiplies his church only by means of his word. You could could uh, have a great praise and worship band You could have a great drama program. You could have just great children's ministries. But it's through the word of God being explained and its implications understood that the church actually grows. And Calvin preached verse by verse through the Bible because he saw the preacher, especially himself, as merely a dispatched messenger of a divine message. Again, not his message. But God's message. He knew that, quote, as soon as men depart, even the smallest degree from God's word, they cannot preach anything but falsehoods, vanities, impostures, errors, and deceits. And Calvin preached this way because he understood the power of God's word. He said, When, when at, wherever the gospel is preached, it is as if God himself came into the midst of us in his sermon on the epistle to the Ephesians. He says, it is certain that if we come to church, we shall not hear only a mortal man speaking, but we shall feel even by his secret power, referring to God's power, that God is speaking to our souls, that he is the teacher He so touches us that the human voice enters into us and so profits us that we are refreshed and nourished by it. God calls us to him as if he had his mouth open and we saw him there in person. And so he continues, let the pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God, of which they are constituted administrators or stewards Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it, from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose, thunder and lightning if necessary. But let them do all according to the word of God. And like, like Paul believed, a pastor's primary task, therefore, is to preach and teach the Word of God. Recall in, in Acts chapter 6, when there were a, n- a number of widows who, who needed to be taken care of, that some of the apostles were getting distracted away from the Word of God to care for these needs. And rightly so, these needs need to be cared for. But they said in Acts chapter 4, or chapter 6, verse 2, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They weren't saying it's not right for us to serve tables because we're apostles. They're saying we should not give up preaching in order to do so. And that's why Paul exhorted Timothy, preach the word be ready in season and out of season, Repute, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, the pastor's job is to explain what the word of God says and to draw out its implications. And, you, and so you might be thinking, okay, well, clearly the implications of this is that our pastor should be preaching the word. How does it apply to me then? Well, here's here's my attempt at an application. If the preacher's primary t- task is to explain what, what the Bible says and its implications, after every sermon that you hear, you should be able to, likewise, explain what that passage means. So if, if your spouse wasn't able to come to church today, you should be able to go home and explain, look at the passage and explain the passage adequately. Maybe not be able to, you know word for word explain everything that was said, but explain what the passage means. And not only that, you should be able to explain its implications. You should be able to think based upon what was said, there should be changes in my life. There should be things I believe, convictions I hold to, uh, things I should give up, things that I should start based upon that passage. And if you can't do that, then the preacher either failed his task or you weren't paying attention. that happens, we get distracted. But I would encourage you to make it your practice as you're driving home or maybe as you're sitting around the lunch table uh, with with your family to ask these questions. What does this passage mean? And what, how should that change us as a family and as individuals? In fact, even today, as we're having fellowship together as a church, it would not be awkward to ask that question. And I encourage you to do so. So Paul understood that he was a servant of the church and that his stewardship was to preach the whole counsel of God. Thirdly, he understood that his message message that he was to proclaim was the mystery that had now been revealed. Look at verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this message that Paul taught everywhere, he called the revealed mystery. Now, in English, we hear the word mystery and and what it brings to mind A puzzle to be solved, or like a whodunit novel. We're supposed to figure out who who the crime was committed by. But the New Testament word actually refers to something that had once been hidden, but had now been revealed. And it speaks to God finally bringing to light His grand plan of salvation. What was God going to do in light of Adam's fall? If God created us to worship Him and enjoy Him forever, and all men are sinners and have, and have abandoned Him, we all like sheep have gone astray, what's God going to do about it? And there was hints that were given in the Old Testament. There was explanation of how men were supposed to live. But how God would solve the whole problem was not fully clear until Christ rose again from the dead. And he sent out his apostles and they were given new revelation. All right, as Paul says, this mystery that was once hidden to previous ages and generation has now been revealed to the saints. Referring, that means Christians. And the word ages refers to past periods of history and generations, the people living in those past ages. And the point being is that even though Old Testament saints had access to God's word. They had his revelation in through the prophets and in the law and in the psalms and writings. They still didn't fully understand even everything that was written there, even those who were writing them. And that's why Peter explains that in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So it wasn't clear how God was going to do accomplish this great rescue operation until the new testament began to be composed and so paul was one of those tasked by god to reveal to the saints everything that had now been revealed to him again we got to remember that very little of the new testament even when the book of colossians was written very little of the new testament had been revealed There might have been a a gospel or a letter that was in circulation, but very few churches had copies. They might have had a person who had seen Christ and witnessed Christ and they could come and explain what they had learned. Or they might have a copy of one of the letters or the gospels. But it wasn't until another generation that all those letters and revelations began to be compiled into what we now hold as the New Testament. And so when... Paul came into uh, a new city. He would begin his ministry at the synagogues. And it and this is how he'd always do his evangelistic ministry. He would go to the synagogue, and because he was a former Pharisee and an, and, a, and an expert in the Word of God, they would ask him to teach. And he would typically open to an Old Testament passage and explain what it meant. And then after explaining what it meant, he would then go on to show how that... Uh, passage had been come to had come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ and he'd go on to explain the gospel in light of what Christ had accomplished. Moreover, throughout his career as an apostle, Paul would then receive further revelation through the letters that even he would write to the various churches and then other men would receive further revelation, including Peter and John and Jude, Luke, Matthew and Mark and these got compiled with John receiving the final revelation around 80, 90. And it became the last book of the New Testament. And so what we hold in our hands is the message that Paul was so eager to make clear to the Colossians and the church of Laodicea and all the churches of Galatia and throughout the world. This was his burden to make clear every person understand the glories that had been revealed to him. And this is it was so important to him as we saw last week, he was willing to suffer just so that people could understand God's word. And even though we now have the complete revelation in our hands, we still need it to be explained. Because there's so much Depth in the Word of God. There's so much that it reveals. The men have been teaching the Bible for over 2,000 years now, and yet there's still more to learn. Even every time I study the Bible, I'm learning more things. And I've studied the Bible postgraduate over six years of postgraduate study, and there's still more that I learn. I, I preach on it every week. It's, it's, as Augustine said, the, the scriptures are shallow enough for a young child to wade in and yet deep enough to drown an elephant. Like we will never exhaust the Scriptures because of who it reveals. The inexhaustible God. And this truth is suggested actually in the next phrase. How great among the Gentiles are, note this, the riches of the glory of this mystery. The verse emphasizes the, the immense glory within the gospel message. It can be translated riches of glory or glorious riches or the wealth of glory. So what's so glorious about the gospel, we need to ask? Well, I think there's lots of things we could say, but this, this verse implies three things. First of all, note the recipients. How great among the Gentiles. Greek word is ethne where we get the term ethnicities or nations. And it points to the fact that the salvation was never supposed to be limited to just the Jews. But it was always God's plan that all people everywhere, every tribe, tongue, and nation would repent and believe and trust in Him. That God was offering the full benefits of the Messiah's work to pagan Gentiles who for centuries had committed great atrocities, lived in just filthy sin, that they would now be actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit Himself receiving complete forgiveness, that they would be given absolute assurance of eternal life and with that a resurrected body, that they would become fellow heirs of the kingdom of God? I mean, such a message was, was too astonishing for, for any Jew to accept on its own. At least for most to believe it. And that's why they so strongly opposed Paul's message. It was too glorious to be true. It sounded like an overly inflated fairy tale. But it was true. So the, the it was glorious because of who received it. Secondly, the gospel reveals that salvation includes the indwelling presence of God. Notice it says Christ in you. Well, you might be thinking, wait a second. I thought the Holy Spirit was the one who indwells believers. Why does it say Christ in you? Well, remember that. For in our good Trinitarian theology, we worship a God who is three persons and yet one essence. He's not three persons and three essences. Three persons, one essence, which means where Christ is, the Father is, and so the Spirit is also. And really the point is, is that God himself indwells us. And it's just to understand the glory of this reality that God himself indwells every genuine believer. Consider the holiness of the other places where God dwelt. The tabernacle, the temple, where, where for a priest to serve in, only certain people could serve in those locations. And they were priests and they had to be cleansed through the shedding of blood. And if they did anything to defile the standard of holiness, they would be killed. That same holy God indwells every believer. Which is why Paul tells the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body recognize who it is that dwells within you. And you might ask, well, why doesn't He destroy me then? Well, I think sometimes He does take people away because they will not cease from their sin. That's what happened to some of the Corinthians because of their abuse of the Lord's table. But I think the the simpler answer to that question is because that shows the power of grace through Christ. That even though He is holy, He knows that He needs to continue to sanctify us to make us holy. The third thing, the third thing that is noted about the glory of this gospel is that Christians' possession of Christ now guarantees that one day they will receive future glory. Notice that it says Christ in you is the Hope of glory really the most glorious aspects of the gospel have yet to be experienced and much of them have yet to really be revealed now when when people hear the gospel for the first time most of them have no I mean I'd say all of them have no clue of the glory that's actually being offered to them and most people when they hear the gospel, they usually understand that what's being offered is forgiveness for their sins and hope in heaven. And this is because when we share the gospel with unbelievers, we're only giving them just the tip of the iceberg. Because usually we're, we only have a short amount of time. But we need to remember that it is just the tip of the iceberg. There is Thousands of leagues more glory that goes on beyond the gospel that is revealed in the word of God. So just just imagine that your family was invited to live in the White House. And and you tell your your young children about this opportunity and you can see by the look on their faces. They're not all that enthusiastic. And frankly, they don't want to go. And so knowing your children, you you tell them a mystery, a secret about the White House. And this is the secret. Some of you might already know the secret. But in every room of the White House, there exists special jelly beans for each room of the White House. It's true. And you know their love for jelly beans. And so they think, oh, there's jelly beans in the White House. All right, we're in. Mom and dad, let's go. And, and this is what appeals to him. And then it's a true statement. And yet there are far more glorious things about living in the White House than eating jelly beans. The simple gospel message that we usually share with unbelievers, again, it's just articulating the basic entrance requirements, you could say. it: That God is the creator of all things and, and we owe him our obedience and our allegiance. And yet no man obeys God. We have all sinned. We have all gone our own way. And therefore, we deserve death and judgment. And so Christ came to pay the penalty of that judgment that we deserve. And that anybody who believes in what Christ accomplished can receive a forgiveness and be restored to their relationship with God. Now, all those truths that I just articulated, which is usually what gets shared when we share the gospel with unbelievers, all of those truths are incredibly and wonderfully glorious. But they're just the tip, just the beginning of the glories that are revealed in Scripture. They're like the opening few lines of a classic novel. Chris and I, I think every conversation we have, we we start getting into conversation about a classic novel we were having a conversation this morning, and Richard came up, and he's like, "Yeah, right. You're talking about classic novels. I don't believe you." But and we were. But consider these opening lines of a of a class some of these classic novels. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's from what book? Tale of Two Cities. Of Two Cities. Good. Call Me Ishmael. Moby Dick. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. The single men are thinking, "What? what is that from? It's Pride and Prejudice, right? Great book. Now, these are great opening lines. But they're just the beginning of a greater story follows in the pages. In, in the totality of those books. Now, the author didn't pin those lines so that the readers would just be content to read the first opening lines and think, wow, those are great lines. No, they, they wrote them so that the, the, person, the, the readers would be drawn in to not just enjoy those lines, but want to see all of the lines, all of the description, the whole storyline. And not just to, to, to stop halfway through, but to finish the book. The author wants them to finish the book. And God is the same way. He doesn't just want people to begin to become Christians, but to grow to full maturity, to to finish the book, so to speak, so that one day they could stand before God, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's when the book is finished. And so Paul recognizes that it's that That he's not just telling people a great story. But when people receive this good news, they actually become participants in the story along with him in this great rescue operation. And they can become the main characters themselves if they take the word seriously. Do you realize that? You could become one of the, 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 the most monumental, most influential Christians in ancient th- history if you would just take the word of God seriously and obey it seriously. The impact that you could have for the sake of the nations could be immense. And you don't need to be an apostle. You don't need to be a pastor. You need to be faithful where the Lord placed you. And the impact could be beyond your imagination if you would just believe it and follow it and so Paul he not only wants to see people begin and enter into this story but he wants them to fully engage and to understand all that has been revealed so that they can participate in this glory themselves and yet the greatest glory as we saw is still future The greatest glory that we will experience in this story is still yet to come. It says this, when we finish this classic novel of God's plan of redemption, we stand before him holy and blameless with our resurrected bodies. That it's really just another beginning. It will be like entering, closing a book. And in the close of that book, you're entering into a massive new library like the size of the Library of Congress, with, with glorious things yet to be revealed, yet to be exposed, that you never had any concept of because you were so limited to just that one story so far. And we will spend an eternity in, in this great revelation of God's glory as it continues to be revealed to us, eternity upon eternity, age after age, as we see and savor and participate in the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would stir us up to recognize the immense glory that has been revealed to us and that is offered to us in Christ. Lord, that that, that You would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from Your law. And to devote ourselves more fully to both our obedience to it, but also to our proclamation of it as we share it with friends and with family and with our kids, as we encourage one another with what we're learning. Lord, that you would continue to use this church not just to be a a, a light in this region, but actually use us to be a light to other regions and throughout the world that the light of the glory of the gospel will be known to all nations and that you would even use individuals within our church body to be great participants in your great plan of redemption and that you would so capture their heart with a love for your word that the impact of their life will be far beyond anything, far glorious beyond anything that they've ever read in any, any uh, a book of literature that they've, that they've studied in high school. Lord, use us so that Your name would be exalted among the nations. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.